This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to the show, I'm Jake Cantor. On Talking TV this week, we indulge in a bit of 90s nostalgia and hear from the producer of This Is England 90. Also on the programme, Channel 4 Guns for Entertainment Anarchy, all the industry-defining headlines from RTS Cambridge, and BBC One's visceral retelling of Troy. And finally, keep listening for our verdict on the new Danger Mouse as we preview a brace of upcoming shows. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. In the studio this week, Broadcast Editor Chris Curtis and Danny Fenton, the Chief Executive of Zigzag Productions. Welcome, gents. Good morning. Morning, Jake. Are we well? Recovered from the Edinburgh RTS Cambridge back-to-back session. And Danny, you've just had a a new show announced this week. Yeah, a new music uh, quiz show for Channel 4 for people with uh, ADD. So um, it's called Blink, and if you blink, you'll miss it. But we're, yeah, we're very excited about it and we're creating a, a kind of play-along app to go with the show. So is it Buzzcocks S? Buzzcocks in Fast Forward. No, it's... Uh, <laughs> it's all about speed, is it? It's all about speed of reaction and it's photo images, mashups of pop videos, audio clues. I think it's got a good play-along factor for the um, post-pub audience. Good. All right. Well, we look forward to that. Shall we move on some news? Uh, our first item this week, uh, and it's over to Horse Ferry Road, where Channel 4 is looking to reboot its entertainment under new boss uh, Ben Cordell. Uh, the former objective man has issued a commissioning brief to Indies, calling for more anarchy, mischief and danger, as the broadcaster hopes a bit of TFI magic can rub off on its new shows. Uh, intelligence and contemporary relevance are also vital, Cordell says, uh, adding that he wants to see clever people doing funny things, and funny people doing clever things. Uh, is this smart, Chris, do we think? That's exciting. Um, I'm always, you'll have to forgive me, Ben and Channel 4, I'm always slightly sceptical about commissioning briefs because whenever I read them, I kind of think that you could probably retrofit any programme idea ever into <laughs> the, the things that they ask for. Um, but it would be great to have some genuine excitement and anarchy and mischief um, back on TV and certainly on on, on Channel 4. I think that TFI, he was very, he, he spoke to our reporter, Matt Campelli, and he was, it was interesting, Ben, talking about it, where he said one of the things he liked about when TFI came back was that the, you know, the cameraman wasn't always in the right place, and he liked that you could kind of see the workings, and it felt like there was a bit of an energy there. And that was, that was interesting. When you think about the creative process in telly, I think is so often about ironing out every single floor, and you, you hear about shows being overdeveloped or, or sort of over-scrutinised in the edit, so maybe a bit more organic entertainment might be the way to go do you see this as well danny that shows entertainment is becoming a bit less polished and that's what audiences want yes there's less polished but i I think what he's after and i had the pleasure of um of meeting him recently and thankfully receiving the brief as well it's kind of back to the future in the sense that they want the edge of shows like you know brass eye you know 11 o'clock show and they want to be able to create a noise which frankly you know what is what channel four was always best at and it feels like Channel 4 getting back to a place where they feel comfortable in their own skin and I think that it's got to be a good thing if he's prepared to take risks and I think you know the word anarchic is a, is a, is a good headline word for what he's trying to achieve. Questions in Parliament, that's what he wants to provoke. Yeah, I mean I don't know how much entertainment can generate questions in Parliament but obviously in the past shows like Brass Eye have tweaked the nipples of uh, of the establishment, <laughs> and I think that's um, you know that that's his remit. And you know he's uh, 
He's an interesting guy with quirky tastes, and I think it's got to be a good thing. Do you think there's a new confidence at Channel 4 now that, uh, that you know they've had hits like Gogglebox and The Island? I think there's a confidence in that they can have hits. I mean, I think obviously they want to have more hits than they currently have, but you know there are now some tempo shows, I suppose, which are returning and are successful, and that is breeding confidence. And you're definitely seeing less pressure on Jay Hunt, I think, than we've seen in the last few years. Mm, I mean, she said at Edinburgh that she wasn't waving the white flag in entertainment, and this feels like a step in the right direction, doesn't it, in terms yeah, of yeah. getting out there and talking to indies and trying think, to get the right ideas. I think Danny's analysis is interesting. There's certainly a lot of humour in this, isn't there? I think that they're, they're kind of, you know, these guys come from objective. They're, they're interested at the moment, Channel 4, very obviously in blurring genre lines in their programmes. And I think this is something where they're trying to blur a little bit. They, they want some comedy and some, some real laughs to bleed into their entertainment output. And I think that's, that's exciting as well. I mean, although our um, music commission actually comes from the music commission of Johnny Rothery, when I told Ben about it, I, and he said, tell me, give me the top line, I said, it's a you know, music quiz show for people with ADD. He goes, that's the kind of irreverence I'm looking for. So it's it's that, as you say, kind of that mixing of genre and, and uh, kind of a noisy top line. So you'd be pitching, Danny? I already am. <laughs> <laughs> I'd expect nothing less. Always be pitching. Uh, yeah. Always be pitching. Uh, pitching so, <laughs> so from the anarchy of Channel 4 Entertainment and on to more cerebral matters at the RTS Cambridge Convention last week. Uh, yes, the industry's power players gathered at West Road Concert Hall where there was more policy on show than at Jeremy Corbyn's first shadow cabinet meeting. Uh, high on the agenda, Culture Secretary John Whittingdale's shock terms of trade review, uh, the plans for BBC Studios and the conflict between consolidation and creativity. Uh, should we tackle these things in turn briefly, shall we? Let's start with it. terms of trade. Danny, you've got some strident views on this, I believe. Well, I'll refer <laughs> you to the article I wrote in broadcast <laughs> yeah, yeah. last week. I think, you know, most producers including, you know, the super indies and the true indies, I think is as, as we are now defined, feel similarly about it. And it's very interesting, that, you know, that Adam Crozier came out and said he didn't feel like the terms of trade needed changing. I feel like the BBC and, and Channel 4 were in abeyance on the terms of trade and Ofcom had kind of pretty much said already that they didn't need uh, to be reviewed. So the fact that John Whittingdale, as, as I used the phrase in my article, picked the scab... Um, feels, you know, badly timed and, and one has to wonder what the true agenda is behind it. Have you got a theory? One can only wonder that if the terms of trade are going to be more beneficial to the broadcasters and that the government are reviewing, you know, the position with BBC and Channel 4, if the broadcasters have more money, does that mean they need less government support? That sounds like a reasonable theory. It caught everyone on the hop a little bit. There's two schools of thought. There's the John McVeigh school of thought, which is that the Ofcom PSB review um, said all is well with the world and we should we should leave it be. And then there's the John Whittingdale view, which is the PSB review says well, we really need to keep a close eye on this. And so that that's prompted him to call for this review. Not much has changed in the last few months since the PSB review. So it's hard to see where how the evidence based um, review is going to differ. There were other theories doing the rounds at Cambridge as well that certainly that the measures being looked at for the big PSBs were being taken in the round. So maybe if they are going to get a bit more on terms of trade, there might be other things they're going to miss out on. Retrans fees was one thing that was sort of being talked about. Maybe that government's weakening on retrans fees and so they're going to give, give the PSBs a bit more on, 
on terms of trade. Everyone's got themselves in a pickle on terms of trade and the, the, the theory and the practice are, are misaligned. The issue is that all these, the vast majority of these big super indies are non-qualifying. So in theory, they don't get terms of trade. The problem is that in reality, of course, they do. ITV offers it, BBC offers it. Channel 4 is the one that, that slightly sort of tweaks it, but not a huge amount. No one wants to blink first. No one wants to be the, peop- the, 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 the broadcaster that offers less favourable terms to these big boys because they won't get the, the quality of ideas. Um, the whole thing, frankly, is a bit of a mess. My, yeah. my two main arguments against terms of trade being reviewed are that although the broadcasters say they want to offer more favourable terms to smaller companies, in actual fact, because they're commercially driven, if they offer better terms to smaller indies, they're going to be more pre-proposed to working with the, the super indies because they're going to get better deals. And the other thing against it is that it makes small companies uh, non-competitive because if any of those small companies look to sell over the next few years, the moment that they sell, they'll be devalued overnight because as soon as they become part of a super indie, their you know their their back end position will change. Okay, and you're uh, you're on the pack council. Just full disclosure, I am on the pack council. Full disclosure. <laughs> we'll do BBC Studios very quickly. Massively underestimated the task as Adam Crozier's view. Uh, quickly, Danny, what do you think? Is, is this as uh, the BBC bitten off more than it can chew on this issue? It seems as with everything at the BBC, is a work in progress. And what really surprised me that came out with the BBC Studios is that they are open to tender some of the, you know, the, the crown jewels. certainly opened the door, haven't they? Yeah. But whether a commissioner would have the confidence to take a long-running in-house show such as EastEnders and say, actually, I believe that the market could do a better job, that'd be quite controversial, wouldn't it? It would be, but I think politically, if BBC Studios is going to be a competitive player in the marketplace then it has to be a two-way street. And they'll, I think they will have to find some existing shows and tender them out and actually um, re, you know, award them to non-BBC producers. Okay, can they satisfy these state aid concerns? I doubt they'll satisfy the, the state aid concerns of ITV and the big super indies. The question is whether they'll satisfy the state aid concerns of the various different regulators and ultimately the government that's going to have to make the... The judgment on this, I think on studios, it's worth saying that I still find it hard to see in the future BBC Studios making lots of shows for ITV and Channel 4. I just don't really see it. What I see is them wanting to make shows for the cable operators in the US and the other English language speaking parts of the world. And I kind of have a degree of sympathy that they should, they could potentially be allowed to do that because I think given that we're going into straightened times for the BBC financially, and it's hard to see in the future suddenly BBC finance is coming back to, to, to being buoyant, that, that giving the BBC a bit more leeway to exploit its credentials overseas, make a bit of money, and hopefully, well, certainly reinvest that cash back in commissioning UK content, I'm sort of sympathetic to that, to that aim. Okay, and finally, Chris, there was a good debate about creativity and consolidation, wasn't there, at Cambridge? It was a grown-up debate. David Abraham and Tim Hinks kind of led it um, from opposite points of view. It was tied to the terms of trade thing, but actually it was more a sort of cultural thing about American ownership of creative businesses in the UK and whether that cultural chasm was too vast to bridge. And it was also about scaling creativity, which is a perennial sort of issue. I remember long before the Americans were buying up 
Channel 5 and all three media. I remember talking to David Frank about it when, you know, RDF and IWC and the, these businesses were coming together and he was he was sort of struggling a little bit with or, or, or wrestling with, with should there be a creative director that kind of worked across the different indies in the group or not. And in some ways it's the same sort of issues. How You know, how can you ensure that, creatives are happy and doing their best work in a really big organization how can you ensure that the people that you've signed up for their their three years don't at the end of that term decide you know what i'll go somewhere else i'll set up by myself i'll i'll, I'll work with another organization these these debates are not, are not going away final word danny is the uk becoming an ip farm i think the, the rest of the world is becoming more competitive with the uk i wasn't a witness to the, to the debate in cambridge but i do think that there is a a big issue around, you know, creativity and and the stranglehold on it by super indies. Speaking as a as a true indie, and I do think that the meat will inherit the earth, and that the best ideas uh, invariably do come from true independence. And you know that that's uh, the question that needs to be asked of the broadcasters is where are they getting their best ideas from. Okay. Commissioner of the Fortnight Time now. Uh, BBC One is preparing to strap on its sandals and sheathe its swords for an epic and visceral retelling of Troy next year. Uh, Kudos is producing the post-Watershed series, which is set to be among one of the most expensive in the BBC's history. Uh, is this your kind of thing? It sounds like it's... Um, the sounds a bit Game, Game of, of Thrones, Thrones territory, factor, doesn't it? it? And you can see across all the broadcasters the impact of Game of Thrones and people trying to tap into the sword and sandal market to me it's actually it's quite exciting you know i think the bbc should be doing things like this and i hope it's um it's well made is it risky chris this word risky which keeps reappearing i think the amount of money they're going to potentially spend on it it might be it will be risky though what i would say is they're going to have to piece together a hell of a co-pro jigsaw i would have thought to to do this if we're talking about a couple of million quid an episode the BBC is not wealthy enough to be uh, funding the the main bulk of that. I think what's really clear is that in the current debate around what the BBC should and shouldn't be doing, some of the brickbacks coming from the politicians have been, oh, where's the BBC box set drama? Where's the stuff that can stand alongside the, the really big epics from the US? I think, it, if nothing else, it signals a sort of ambition shift. Not that every drama the BBC does is going to be like this, but as well as doing interesting contemporary pieces that there will be a few tent poles particularly in scripted commissioning where they really pull out all the stops and they're trying to say look this is something that's playing in the in the sort of netflix space okay those are your headlines for this week thanks to danny and chris Moving on, it's been nearly 10 years since Shane Meadows' film This Is England, uh, which then spawned a Channel 4 series in 2010. Uh, This Is England 86 and 88 both delivered audiences and critical acclaim. And after a leave of absence from our screens, the drama has now entered the 90s for a third and very likely final act. Centering on the lives of a group of young people in Sheffield, This Is England 90 catches up with a gang just as Acid House and Manchester are taking hold across the country. Mark Herbert is the producer and will be with us in a moment to discuss the show. But first, a clip. Here, Sean and his parents have received some bad news. He hasn't got on to the photography course. 
And just a little warning, uh, this contains a bit of strong language. Due to the manner in which you left the drama course back in January 1989, that's a bloody mistake. It has to be. That's it's not a mistake, wrong, is it? Sean. It's right, I left the course. No, it's a different course, Sean. Got it doesn't matter what course it is, Mum, it's the same college. Sean, you was in bits over Michelle. You it doesn't matter, like, they give a fuck about that. It, they're not bothered. I'm going to get Dr Lenny to have a word with him and no, he'll you're back not, me up. Sean, you was no, on antidepressants. It doesn't matter. You didn't just bloody swan off. I, it doesn't matter, Mum. They're not going to take it into consideration. Just leave it at that. It does matter, Sean. It doesn't fucking matter! How many times whoa, whoa, is my whoa. fucking life? Not yours! It's my fault. I walked okay. off the fucking course okay. and I'm not bothered. I didn't need to get you off me back Fine. anyway. Look, just calm down I now. don't care. Fine. I don't care. Okay, now calm down, Sean. That's uh, quite an intense little scene, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you for coming in. That's all right. Uh, you're just putting the finishing touches to episode four, aren't you? Uh, yeah, we were, um, we finished the mix a couple of days ago, and um, we're in the grade now. Um, so, Chef, literally, we were till 10 o'clock last night. We were working on it this morning. I think it airs on the 4th of October. I think we were actually going to hand it, deliver it on the 3rd. Scary. Is that quite close to the wire? Very, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had loads of hair yeah, <laughs> two weeks ago. <laughs> why, what, so why do you leave it so late to, the, to, to deliver there to was, the broadcaster? There was, the, the, there was an earlier slot available, which we agreed to do with Channel 4. I think that the thing with this is it's so authored by Shane that um, he's directing all four, the last one's feature length. They just take a lot of time. And he puts the care and attention that he did on, on the original film. It doesn't treat, you know, he's got no... and So everyone's treated like so, a little film. Yeah, and so um, so he really is, you know, he's crafting it and spending the time and effort and energy to make it the best it can be. And, um, you know, so it's just the way it happened. I mean, it, but it, it's kind of uh, it's often like this, to be honest with you. <laughs> so what are those finishing touches look like? Well, like, I mean, even little things like the grade is obviously we, you know, there's... Um, uh, the mix and the grade are so important, especially with something that's sort of period, with the music influences, uh, even things like graphics. And, you know, you don't think of effects with This Is England 90, but there's always a satellite dish. There's always a wheelie bin that you've got to paint out. These little things that just you've just got to get right. So little modern references that you've just yeah. got to remove completely. Yeah, yeah. You've obviously got a great location team and design team, but there's always a rogue car that you can't move or a thing that's in shot. So... You know, you just got to block them. And out. you you film it in Sheffield? Yeah, we filmed um, pretty much all of this in Sheffield. Yeah, my hometown. So um, the the thing with this, it's obviously seasonal. So the last one being winter, there's a very different look to each one. You know, in fact, the crazy one about this is that we've got this crate. We've got this mad thing where we had we filmed it in the winter, and um, one day we were got a snow machine to create snow, and two days later we were filming a scene which had a continuity issue which hadn't had snow. So one day we're creating snow, then it snowed in Sheffield, and two days later I've got guys, like five guys with water bowsers getting rid of snow. It's just mental. <laughs> and it was always the intention to do this third series, wasn't it? But there's been a bit of a gap between 88 and 90. Yes. Why, why was that? Really, really weird, because I think we, we finished, obviously finished 88, went down great, won the BAFTA, um, really proud of it, and... I think what Shane's always like, what's always been good about these is giving them a little bit of a gap. So there's a, a distance between. So actually, when you revisit them, it's not just like a, a continuation. There's been a, there's been, and especially with the 80s and late 80s and 90s, cultural changes were massive. You know, you'd sort of like things would just change in a year. And that's always helped. And we were going to always go back. Shane had an idea, wanted to do a film. And then we, we got involved with the Stone Roses documentary, Made of Stone, which was literally 
so out of the blue. Our, you know, f- favourite band, Ian Brown rings Shane, because Ian Brown was in 86 as an extra, big fan. And he rang Shane to look, keep a secret, we're getting back together, we want you to document it. So when Shane sort of told me that and we went to the press conference, it was... It was just, it just had to happen. We couldn't say no. You couldn't say no can't to say that no offer. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. And the Roses and, and you know, we'd never seen them live. And there's this opportunity to, you know, this is your favourite band. So I think the, the main reason is that this project came around that was so out of the blue, no development, just straight in. And that took two years of our lives. Was that quite helpful in a way? Because obviously there are lots of references to the Stone Roses in, in 90. Yeah. I think we all, you, you have this real vivid, I was 19 in 90, so I have this really vivid memory. Uh, I'd been travelling and backpacking after A-levels and I've got this weird memory of having these mixtapes and some this guy from Stockport gave me a the Roses thing and there was always a seminal moment. Shane had his seminal moment on with the Roses and I think what, what was interesting actually was not just, because Shane's always about performance and very much focused on actors. And I think what the Roses thing did, filming Heaton Park with, I think we had 37 cameras on one of the nights, a helicopter and all these cameras. I think what it what it, it gave Shane this almost confidence to be able to, and you'll see it in the series, is to actually know that he could do multi-camera stuff. You know that he can still, you know, he can still direct with his own amazing style, but with you know, there's one scene coming up on the on in the episode on Sunday night, which is, I think we had a rig of eight cameras and it's one take. It's a 20-minute wow. scene and it's one take. And I think that in order for Shane to get that, the lessons that he learned on the roses and the confidence he got of shooting... The thing about the roses is you can't ask them to go again when they're in front of 70,000 people at Heaton Park. You can't say, go again, that wasn't right. So you've <laughs> just got... Take. <laughs> so I think that gave, and I think that the, he applied that philosophy to this particular scene that everyone else, this this kind of um, Sunday dinner scene if you like that's coming on Sunday for a while I look forward to it so um, music is such an important part of it isn't it yes. how, how do you go about selecting oh, the references and the well the even songs. from dead man from dead man's shoes I mean obviously what records we've got and you know I've got a lot of musical um friends you know and and Shane's obviously got his his relationship with a lot of people and it's a really beautiful process it's one of my favorite bits because it, it's, it, it happens as early as the wreck is. Like, there might be me and Shane in my car going to look at a location and jumping, and I'll just go, have you heard this? Willie Monubal, which is this, you know, which was on episode two, you're sort of sitting there. That was, And then Shane will go, oh, you've got to hear this new track by Gavin, the, the, like Gavin Clark, who's worked with Shane a lot. Or in, and there's this lovely, almost like the 90s, it's almost like this mixtape philosophy that you're just passing it on. There's this weird thing with, to do with image and sound is where a class, a great song might be great and then you put it in front of the images, it just doesn't quite work. And then when you get it right, it's just almost a, a you click your fingers and there's a little light bulb goes, that's it. And it's a really, that's one of my favourite parts of the, the whole producing process. And for those who perhaps haven't seen the series, I mean, it's, it's, would it be a fair characterisation to say it's quite plot light? Wait till everyone sees the fourth. I think that the... Um, <laughs> We're obviously with it being the last one. There's a lot of stuff to do with the film that we're revisiting. I think that the one of the beauties of TV compared to the film is with the film you've got. We had to focus on Tomo, uh, Sean character, because you've got like ninety to hundred minutes, and even though he works so hard in rehearsals and gives these backstories, so even even a character with one line has got a backstory. Is that I think well, the beauty of the TV series is that they've got room to breathe a little bit, and you've got room to delve into some of this. So. I mean, it's, it's really odd is that I actually, like the first episode that was on, which is actually quite, you know, the spring, 
you know, you just, I, I think Shane loves his characters and sometimes you've got to let them breathe. So in order that when you start to deliver the key plot things, it, you've kind of earned, is earned it. So I would say that there's none of it is like deliberately plot light. I think it's actually very genuinely, oh, let's love these characters so you can see and you can see what the impact that's going to come in the next episode. You've kind of had to go through the sort of what you feel is something sort of just getting to know them again. Yeah, it's it's amazing watching watching Shane work and watching the characters work because, like I say, each one he lo- and they've all got so much detail and, and intricacy. I mean, the, the 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 amazing thing on this is going to be the amount of deleted scenes that we've put on the cutting room floor that are beautiful. It's heart wrenching because we've just got these scenes that are so well acted. So the DVD is going to be a Channel Four's put a few up online, hasn't it? Some of the, yeah. some of the deleted scenes. Oh, yeah, there was, there, I mean, a tiny fraction of what's going to come. <laughs> so where where are those going to see the light of day? Uh, on, the DVD, on the DVD, the DVD will come out in November, and um, yeah, there's going to be. So that'll be an extra treat. Yeah. And um, one of the things I read from Shane was that he doesn't like to stick too much to a rigid filming schedule. He likes to let the day progress as, as it should and how he wants it to unfold. Is that is, What sort of opportunities and challenges does that present? It's actually harder than having... It's really weird to keep something so fluid. I mean, don't get me wrong. No, we, do, we know where we're going to go on the day. We have a unit base. We know we're going to be in this location. But I guess the, pro, the, the, the issue... We've got a great team of people who know that if Shane finds... So Shane will not move on to another scene until he knows he's got that one in the can. Sometimes you go in there, you're really surprised you might have a scene that looks like a massive challenge, and he'll do it in half an hour. He has to feel it, you know, he has to feel. And sometimes, so always with us, you have to, and I guess the way Shane works is he doesn't sort of have, so in terms of we film on location, we don't have a set. And when you're doing period, you've, and you're in the city of Sheffield, you've always got things like an ambulance or a helicopter or whatever, one of the main challenges is to just make it feel like it is they're walking onto a set. So that you're trying to get rid of the distractions. So from a from a production perspective, it's actually more challenging than if you've got a rigid structure because you're always trying to be fluid and you're always thinking one step ahead, thinking, well, we, if we wrap on this location at lunchtime, we need to move to this location. So all the time you've kind of got this really weird sort of plasticine <laughs> schedule that you're trying to, <laughs> you know, and, and, and try and create so that when Shane gets on there with the actors he can just do what he does best. That sounds quite tough. It's crazy tough, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, if you think about the BBC, I think they work quite rigidly, don't they? They like they like mm. a drama team to be you know, producing 12 scenes a day. Or yeah. I've not, I mean, the Channel 4 have been am- amazingly supportive and I think because they trust us and we don't, don't get, you know, we don't go over schedule, we don't go over budget, we get it done. I think that they'd be all over us if we were <laughs> not getting to the end of the day and you're not shot anything. Sometimes they're so surprised because you might go, you know, today we shot 25 minutes of drama. <laughs> <laughs> but there's an acceptance that Shane yes. is allowed to get on with what he does best. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's really, and I think he's earned, you know, after years and years of filmmaking, you kind of he knows he's very sensible. It's not so, so some like mad student project. It's kind of really is an amazing. And I mean, the crew have been the crew on this, the HR, you know, from top to bottom, were just incredible um, in terms of their work ethic. And your cast, uh, all gone on to big things. Yeah, it's. Beautiful to see. Was it quite tough to? The cast wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it to was get like, them back together. I remember on eighty six, it was like just ringing people up and they were like, "Can you? Can we do this series? Yeah, I'll, I'm working on a building site, or I'm doing this." Or, <laughs> and of course, on this one, they're all all over the world, and it's fantastic testament to them. I mean, you look at Vicky McClure in the last ten years, the transformation. Agreed, Joe yeah, Gilgun. She's, she's an amazing actress. Stephen Graham's Al Capone in Boardwalk Empire. You know, I mean, he's sort of like you might have him. 
and because Shane shoots chronologically where possible, you need them for the whole duration because things change. Things do change in the story and in the script. So you can't just go, can you come in for one day? And we'll do all your scenes in one day because you can't think, you might shoot something that then doesn't fit. So it is a bit of a challenge and sort of like, and they come back and you've got them in one se- you know, one series. Pickups are always a nightmare because they're sort of like, Joe's got a beard and then he goes and does another series and he shaves his beard and he comes back and he's got, to, you know, Vicky's in one, she's got blonde hair in this. And then in Line of Duty, she's got dark hair. <laughs> so you just... Uh, in the run-up to the series, Shane said that it's impossible to say never about another series. Yeah. <laughs> Am I reading too much into it to say that, that he's leaving the door open to do more? Or... I think that it would it would have to come from Shane. I think that it feels like... A, it does feel like an end. And I think that the way that episode four unfolds, there is a full stop. But, you know, like when we even decided to do the film, that, that after the film, you think that's it. And then you go and do Q&As and you realise these stories are there from Lowell's backstory and all the characters that he couldn't give the screen time to. So who knows? I mean, if you know, it, it might be in 10 years' time he wants to revisit them. But I think it, it doesn't feel, and certainly at the moment, um, where we are right now in episode four, it doesn't feel like we've got any... Things aren't suddenly Things aren't change. suddenly going, oh, God, yeah, wouldn't it be great to do this? It does feel yeah. like it's the end. And just a, a word on, on Warp... Uh, Obviously, you've got a lot of projects on the go, one of which is Last Panthers for for Sky. And uh, in the week where you've just signed up David Bowie to do, yeah, to do yeah. the score. Yeah, I would love to take the credit for that. Um, with it being my, <laughs> Can you tell us Peter how that Carlton's. came about? Um, I, it was a, a chance meeting from Johan, the director, and um, Johan met David and they got on really well. And I think that, and continue to get on well, Peter Carlton, who's the producer uh, with OA Core, who's just done uh, Last Panthers, I mean, it's been three, it's four years of real slog. It's a real coup. I mean, what I love, I was just thinking about this because we've had a few changes at Warp recently. We've gone, kind of gone through this, let's scale up, let's scale up, let's scale up. Like a lot of production companies feel like you should scale up. And we started to do that and then thought, you know what? Actually, we're just better at doing these things with care and attention and passion. Um, and so we've had a bit of a restructure, made Peter's become a CEO with myself and it's lovely. What I love about Last Panthers is that I have had very little to do with it. Yeah, I'm so proud of it. And it's that's the way, you know, it's lovely when you've got a team of people working on something. Like with This Is England, it's blood, sweat. It's my own blood, sweat and tears and stress. And with Last Panthers, Peter sends me these cuts and I absolutely fall in love with them, but I have had no blood, sweat and tears. Yeah, so you get to sit sort of one step removed and enjoy yeah, it Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I really do. I, enjoy, I really enjoy it. And has David Bowie been into the office yet? He's not been into the office. No, that is. Um, I'm trying to make that happen. I think he lives. He lives in New York. So, um, but I mean, and it's an, it is obviously not released, but it is an incredible song and it's an incredible credit sequence. So uh, I'm really excited. Great. Well, all the best with that and the rest Thank of uh, this is England, which continues this Sunday at 9 p.m. Uh, finally this episode onto some previews Danny Fenton and Chris Curtis are back with me and we will start at BBC Three which is preparing to air Asian Provocateur uh, the six part series follows comedian Ramesh Ranganathan as he reluctantly tours Sri Lanka after being told by his mother that he has to learn more about his cultural heritage here Ramesh meets his uncle who seems more interested in getting him to invest in his business which makes bricks out of elephant dung I never, I didn't say that I was interested in starting up a business. I didn't come here saying, I mean, that's not the point of the show. It's not, it's not Romish does Dragon's Den in Sri Lanka. Look, look, look for some clients in, uh, in your country so we I can... Think, well, it's not really a familiar product. No, but in... it, 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 is, uh, it is a unique product. There's yeah, a big market it for it. It is unique. Yes. 
Let me collect the wheelbarrow from here because we are going to collect some dung and take it back to the factory. When have you known when somebody's thinking about investing? Is that, well, if you want to invest in this, you've got to go do like everything. Do all the jobs if you're thinking about investing in it. Nobody does that. Chris, a bit of uh, idiot abroad about this, I thought. Very much so. It was an, it was an enjoyable half hour. I like that it was a half hour. Yeah, I like that as it, well. It felt, so that, that gave it the sort of the, the traditional sort of comic feel to it. There were very loose, slight elements of sort of traditional travelogue and a few insights into Sri Lanka, but really it's an opportunity for for sort of Ramesh to get his own show and to, to play off that sort of cross-cultural thing. The, the way it was cut in the edit so that it would go from Sri Lanka back to him and his mum having a chat prior to the trip and, and she was kind of bullying him and telling him what to do and he was kind of shrugging his, his shoulders. That was quite fun. There were lots, you know, there was an idiot abroad, there was a hint of 50 ways to kill your mammy in it, like in that kind of relationship with the mum. It was it was a really pleasant watch, very enjoyable. Agree, Danny? No. <laughs> oh dear. I, I thought you weren't laughing during the clip. Chris and I chuckling away, you're stony-faced. I, um, I had title envy. I thought uh, it, it was a very clever title. <laughs> Beyond that, I thought it was very formulaic. He wasn't that funny, but maybe that's because he's an Arsenal fan. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, apparently. And, uh, you know, but beyond that, I thought it was, it felt quite false and quite forced. I think he's a kind of an emerging talent. He is. TV loves him at the moment. Yeah. I mean, there's barely a panel show without him these days. Yeah, he's, he, he, he's, I mean, it, comedy is very subjective. You know, um, I chuckled along in a few places. Danny was, was less bothered. I mean, that's the, that's sort of the, the, the nature of it. It's not going to reinvent the wheel, this, the, 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 this show. I think that it's the kind of thing you sort of, you know, BBC Three show, you wonder about it as an online kind of thing. Would, like, it, would it stand out online? It would, I'm not convinced on that front. I suspect it, it wouldn't, and I feel there's a lot of broadcasters saying what's already abroad, and I think what happened was, you know, he's a hot piece of talent. People were saying, well, what would he like to do? Oh, I'd like to go back and visit, you know, my family in Sri Lanka, and that's probably the process by which it got commissioned. So, like Chris says, it hasn't reinvented the wheel, and in an online environment, it probably wouldn't stand out, but I'll probably be wrong. <laughs> the only other thing I would like to say on the subject matter, it was interesting, given that there are lots of British Asians living in the UK and you know obviously we're all based in London so maybe it's exaggerated in in, in London for whom you know London is the, the the only world they've ever they've ever known and there is a sort of generational divide and a sort of cultural d- divide there so I think it was a kind of interesting thing for for BBC Three to explore and I do think that it's interesting that BBC Three is always the place I think in terms of factual where where there's young skewing factual programming which takes on those sort of interesting topics in a in a kind of accessible way so of all the things when BBC Three moves online they need to make sure they maintain that because they've got a little niche there. Okay, Asian Provocateur is made by Rumpus Media and debuts on the 30th of September at 9pm. Finally, this episode, he's back after a 30-year absence. Yes, Danger Mouse is returning to the field for CBBC in the latest of a long line of kids' TV revivals. Uh, The Rodent Secret Agent is voiced by Alexander Armstrong and the 15-part series is produced by Fremantle Media. Let's hear a clip from the first episode where Danger Mouse is getting a telling off from Colonel K. Bad show, DM. You destroyed the whole of London for a stolen chair worth £12.99. I thought it might be the Baron. Greenback's not a villain anymore, DM. He said it on a chat show. What more proof do you need? Colonel, when is the chief ever 
wrong. Besides the time he thought that fancy dress party was an alien invasion and blasted the five-year-olds into space, screaming and crying for their mummies never to return to... Probably not the best time to bring that up, Penfold. The bill to repair the city has bankrupted the Secret Service and we've blown the series' budget on the special effects. We've even had to ask our narrator to do the incidental music. Bam, bam, bam! Not yet! I'm sorry, DM. I've been ordered to fire you. Now! Bam, bam, bam! Uh, any fans of the original here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great kind of uh, British tradition of animation and maybe it says something about my pure old humour. I found this funnier. <laughs> I thought, you know, Alexander Armstrong has carried on in that great tradition set by Terry Scott and um, David, Jason. David Jason. And I love the kind of knowingness of it, you know, about the kind of referring to narrator having to do the yeah, music. Breaking can, the fourth wall. Was yeah, nice. breaking the fourth wall, I thought, I thought was great. It's really good to see strong British animation for kids because thinking of my kids, they've kind of grown up on a diet of, you know, American Disney driven animation. So I thought big thumbs up to the BBC, CBBC for, for bringing that back. And, you know, Danger Mouse is back to save the world and maybe the BBC as well. <laughs> Do you agree with that analysis, Chris? Yeah, I, I thought the the what set it apart from stuff was that sort of knowingness, the the references to the the show itself, which was quite which was quite fun. I thought it was too long, to be honest. This episode, I wondered whether. I mean, I don't watch a huge amount. Just shy of twenty five minutes. Yeah, I don't watch a huge amount of kids TV. I must I must admit, but it did. It seemed to sag a little bit for me this particular episode and I wasn't sure that the, 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 the sort of the very obviously signposted narrative was quite carried it off but it looked great sounded good very obviously British set in Britain felt very British British accents Alexander Armstrong's excellent it had a lot going for it um, really nice to see when we're talking about the BBC and there's this ongoing debate about the BBC being distinctive do we think the BBC should be going back to old shows like this and reviving them? Or should they be inventing brand new British animation? Untried so, ideas? So I, I think the latter would be easier to defend and better to champion. I think what's interesting here, though, remember, is that this is going to be a big property for Fremantle Media to try and sell around the world. Huge. Um, and producers like to have known brands that they can then take out elsewhere. So I think it's it's a kind of partnership thing. I'm sure there are many indies and animators out there who are pitching new things to the BBC all the time, but I'm also not surprised that, that probably the BBC gets pitched an awful lot of second generation sort of remakes of uh, uh, of properties because of the way that, that that business model works. FMI will need to sell this to goodness knows how many countries around the world for it to, to, to really make a, a lot of money. So I think that if you're going to do remakes, if the, if the, if the, if the BBC is going to bring things back, it needs to modernise them and it needs to really push the British credentials. What this wasn't was a, a Danger Mouse made very obviously for an international audience. It still felt like it was made for, for British kids. Yeah, I mean, it's a heritage brand. And I think because of the generational kind of gap, you know, you've got people who grew up on it who will recommend it to to their kids and as Chris said you know it's it is the best of British it's really well made it's got really good talent attached to it and probably will do really well internationally as well I like the little references throughout like the DDC news and uh, instead of Apple they had pear did you yeah. notice that <laughs> there was two questions really that it left me asking myself one was is David Icke right that the world is controlled by reptiles <laughs> and the other was why does Danger Mouse have a patch over his eye 
Um, do you know why he's a patch over his eye? No. Have you got an is answer? This is a rhetorical question. I had to Google this to, what, to find out. Um, apparently, there's nothing wrong with his eye, but Penfold poked him in the eye once and he's worn a patch. But in one episode, <laughs> he wears the patch on the wrong eye and then half of the episode's told you've got it on the wrong eye and switches it to the other eye. Great danger mouse like, knowledge. I, like, I, like the sound of that. I did love it as a kid. I remember, you know, I remember really, really enjoying it. So hopefully it'll find a new... What about Dave Lamb? I can't help but think of uh, Come Die With Me whenever I hear his voice. That's that's a slight issue for me when you I'm watching Danger Mouse. <laughs> you should see Penfold's lasagna. I'm sure it's very tasty. <laughs> okay. Uh, Danger Mouse returns on the 28th of September on CBBC. Uh, and that's your lot for this episode. Big thanks to all my guests, Danny Fenton, Chris Curtis and Mark Herbert. We'll be back in a couple of weeks when we'll be talking all things MIPCOM. But until then, please subscribe to us on iTunes, where we have a whole 55 episodes for your listening pleasure. For now, though, I've been Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 